Well, good morning. If I haven't met you, my name is Daniel. I'm one of the pastors here at Christ Central, and we are continuing, as Mary just said, in our summer series in the Psalms titled Rest for the Soul. And so let me read again verse 1, uh, as it really does set the framework for the entire psalm. Psalm, one, uh, psalm 16, verse 1, Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I take refuge. Listen to the way Eugene Peterson translates verse 1. Keep me safe, O God. I've run for dear life to you. Be my Lord. Without you, nothing makes sense. David prays, without you, God, nothing makes sense. Perhaps you prayed a similar prayer recently. God, this doesn't make sense. Or in other words, God, what's the point? We've been mourning the events in our country the past month or so. The Orlando, Florida shooting at the Pulse nightclub, the deaths of Alton Sterling and Philando Castile and the Dallas police officers, and even abroad this week in Nice, France and Istanbul, Turkey. Perhaps you have prayed in the midst of all this, God, this doesn't make any sense. What is the point? When life gets hard and it seems like you are in Peterson's translation running for your life maybe it's in job difficulty or job loss or miscarriage or loneliness or marriage difficulties or children suffering oftentimes an honest prayer is god what is the point there's an article in the new york times about a year ago titled suicide on campus and the pressure of perfection the article wrote about the pressures that many talented and successful students at elite institutions feeling the pressure to be perfect, that we as a culture are raising our children with this expectation to be, as Duke is known for saying, effortlessly perfect. And many of these smart, talented, gifted students have ended their lives in suicide by jumping from buildings or dorms. Amidst the pressure and the internal struggle, there is a final cry for them that life no longer has a point. Life makes no sense, so let's just end it. Oftentimes, there can be in many of us a futility in thinking, an emptiness, a despair, a disillusionment with life. And maybe you've been there or maybe you are there this morning. In his autobiographical book, Telling Secrets, Author Frederick Buechner writes about his teenage daughter who struggled with anorexia. He said there was one night when he was just down, despairing, worried, sick, that his daughter would never get well again. And, and he said something happened that night, and he writes this in his book, Secrets. He said, I remember sitting parked by the roadside, terribly depressed and afraid about my daughter's illness and what was going on in our family. When out of nowhere, a car came along down the highway with a license plate that bore on it one word out of all the words in the dictionary that I needed most to see exactly then, and the word was trust. What do you call a moment like that, he writes? Something to laugh off as kind of a joke that life plays on us once in a while, the, the word of God? He says, I'm willing to believe that maybe it was something of both, but for me it was an epiphany. The owner of the car turned out to be a trust officer in a bank, he writes. And not long ago, having read an account I wrote of the incident somewhere, he found out where I lived and one afternoon brought the license plate itself, which sits propped up on a bookshelf in my house to this day. It's rusty around the edges and a little battered, and it's also as holy a relic 
as I've ever seen. Trust. This morning out of Psalm 16, I want to preach on trust. Trusting in the Lord, and with trusting the Lord comes new perspective, a change in perspective, a God perspective. Because without God, nothing makes sense. Trusting in God, things can make some sense, even while life is still confusing and difficult and complex. Verse 2 says, I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I say to the Lord, Adonai, the ruler, the master of all things, that you are my Lord. Trust in God's in a person, it's not in a program. Trust in God is personal. And I don't mean private. I mean it's personal. On an intimate, personal, I know him, he knows me level. Without a personal relationship with God, things often don't make sense. Life can and will sometimes feel futile and pointless. Without a relationship with God that comes through faith in the Lord Jesus, we're not trusting in Him, we're trusting in something else. But if we can say, you are my Lord, you are my Lord, we're in a personal relationship with God where He can begin to orient and reorient us in our perspective on life. And the first thing that is reoriented when we trust is our perspective on possessions. Our perspective on possessions. Look again at Psalm 16. You are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. There's no good apart from God. Now when life is going well, circumstances are going your way, it's easy to say this, and it's to say verse 6, the lines have fallen from me in pleasant places, right? When, when life is good, it's easy to say those words. But can we say the Lord is my portion and my cup and my lot and the lines have fallen from me in pleasant places? I have a beautiful inheritance when life is hard, when suffering comes, when questions arise. I have some really good friends, some dear friends who became Christians about eight years ago and they are, in the eyes of the world, possessors of everything. I mean, they are the top of the 1%. I mean, multiple million-dollar homes, cars, multiple country clubs, two beautiful sons. And over the past number of years, they've gone through some extreme suffering. A suffering that they've endured that money and possession could do nothing about. And they will now say, in light of their suffering, our cars don't matter, our houses don't matter, see, God has graciously yet painfully led them to a place of deep trust and realization that without God and God's presence, none of those things that they possess are good. When suffering comes into our lives, it will show the pursuit of things for what they are. And without God and His presence, nothing is a good thing. But if we're in personal relationship with God, we possess everything. Look at verse 11. We'll come back to this a little bit later. But verse 11, In your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Now there is a future aspect to this, but I also think there's a present reality of being filled now with joy in God's presence, of being deeply satisfied and pleased in communion with God. Here at Christ Central, when we baptize a child, we uh, ask the parents to choose a passage of Scripture to be a prayer over that child. Verse 11 was our prayer for our oldest son. It's always been one of my favorite verses. 
prayed it for myself, praying it for our son, prayed it for this church, that we would know, deeply know, that life and relationship with God, personal relationship with God and trusting him is the most satisfying and deeply joyous life that we could ever live. And if we're trusting in something other than God, we're not trusting in him alone. And when we're doing this, our perspective will be either boasting in what we have, and when we're in that place and suffering or sickness enters in, we don't know what to do. Or our perspective will be mourning, right? Longing for what we don't have. But if we can trust, then we know that there is nothing good apart from Him, and in God we possess everything. Second thing that is reoriented as we trust is our perspective on delight. Look at verse 4. It says, The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. So the, the psalmist David here is, is kind of setting up a juxtaposition of those who trust in God as being those who are filled with joy and pleasure versus those who run after, pursue, trust in other gods, lowercase g, are filled with sorrow. I shared a, a story a number of years ago when we were just starting this church uh, about doing uh, campus ministry at UNC Chapel Hill. I was leading a fraternity Bible study. And, and the guys in this fraternity, they could educate us all on what partying looks like. Uh, multi multiple nights a week till 3, 4 in the morning. Alcohol and drug of their choice. Sex as often as they wanted. They were pursuing pleasure and satisfaction in all the wrong places. And then to my surprise... One week, two of the ringleaders of this fraternity came to the Bible study. I was shocked. We began discussing this topic of pursuing pleasure, running after certain things for satisfaction. And, and we were in the common room of their fraternity where people just hung out and watched TV. And, and one of the, the two guys opened up very honestly, and he, and he said, you see that window over there? And everybody kind of nodded. And he said, well, there's a group of about three to four of us that, that will go out hard on a Saturday night. We'll stay out late. And we'll wake up hungover on a Sunday morning. We'll grab breakfast and we'll sit by that window. And I write SLH. And we begin to talk about the previous night. And everybody's like, SLH? What, what, is that, what does that stand for? And he says it stands for sadness lives here. He said they would get together every Sunday morning and they would talk about how sad life really was. How the things that they were doing didn't satisfy them didn't bring them lasting joy. And all of us in here have tasted the sorrows of running after other gods, right? The God of, of sex, the God of alcohol, the God of success, of power, of approval, the God of politics, the God of our own image, whether that be our body image or how people respect us. And we think they satisfy. But these gods disappoint us. There is happiness for a moment. Sin tastes good for a moment. But in the end, it fails to deeply satisfy. Tom Brady, Mr. Football, right? Quarterback for the New England Patriots. Mr. GQ married to a supermodel, Super Bowl champion, four times, MVP. He has it all. He has it all. Interviewed by 60 Minutes a number of years ago. Maybe you saw this interview. Tom Brady said, after winning the Super Bowl, the pinnacle, that he began to think there has to be more than this. 
There has to be more. And what, what Brady is saying is that it doesn't satisfy. I have it all and it doesn't satisfy. I'm still wanting more. And so he's asked, well, what else could there be? The interviewer asked him and he said, I wish I knew. I wish I knew. Church, we know. The Lord Jesus, faith in Him, relationship with Christ is drinking from the fountain of love and grace and presence that never runs dry. Christ and Christ alone is what satisfies our deepest longings and thirsts and hunger. Now that doesn't mean that everything else is bad. In fact, we often look to good things like our families and our jobs, which we should care about but we look to these good things to be our ultimate things, and that's the issue. So knowing Christ and Christ alone satisfies. It doesn't mean denouncing everything. It means that in comparison to God and to Jesus, everything else pales. As Paul says in Philippians 3, all else is rubbish compared to knowing Jesus. Delighting in the Lord. David continues to write in Psalm 16, As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones, in whom is all my delight. David's trusting in God, delighting himself in the Lord, and he's delighting himself in the community of the saints. Running after the true God will entail living life with the community of the saints. Not just living life, but enjoying one another. Delighting in one another. I've read this week and I've been reading too many stories of megachurch pastors who've been let go from their position for differing reasons. Addiction, abusive behavior, pastors falling out of ministry. It scares me to death. Not because I ever want to be a megachurch pastor. I don't. (laughs) But because the pastoral call, period, is a hard call. And our enemy likes nothing more than for the leaders of Christ's church to fail. So pray for, pray for us. But there are a few things all these pastors, I've read these differing articles and stories, there are a few things they all had in common. They all became isolated in their role, separate from community. They became demanding of their staff, manipulative, worried about their image and their ego, Across the board, the resounding refrain is that they had stopped delighting in God. They stopped enjoying God, and they become obsessed with their church or their own image, and it led them to become isolated in community or to even damage their community. A good sign of trusting in the Lord and that you're delighting in Him is that you delight in one another. We delight in the community of the saints. A good test to know if your heart is truly delighting in in the Lord, is do you delight in one another? Or do you find yourself isolated and withdrawn and even damaging our very community? Are you eager to get together and do life together, to worship together, to come here on a Sunday morning? And do you prioritize one another and love one another as we worship the same God together? The last thing that's reoriented as we trust in the Lord is our hope, is our perspective on hope. Look at verses 7 to 11. It's the anchor of of this text. For all who trust in God, this is our sure hope. Verse 7, I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. 
Now that, that sounds confusing, maybe at first read. What the psalmist is saying is that when I am awake in the middle of the night, the Lord gives me wise and comforting counsel that allows my heart to be at rest. Now, I normally sleep like a bear. I mean, I, I have, I've said for a long time, the spiritual gift of sleeping. Uh, I can sleep anytime, anywhere. But over the past number of months, I've had a few times when I've either woken up from a sound outside our home or some rapid thoughts running through my mind uh, in a dream. And either way, I've woken up and my heart has been racing. I've wondered, somebody trying to break into our home? I've been scared or anxious. There have been other times I've been afraid for what might happen to my family or what, what's going on in the life of this church. I'm sure you've woken up with racing thoughts and fears and anxieties in the middle of the night. David's saying he's awake. He's awake in the middle of the night. But his heart doesn't race and he doesn't worry. He finds hope in the counsel and the instruction of the Lord. David is saying, I listen to the Lord's word and to his promises and my heart is at rest. See, church, God's given us his word. He's revealed himself to us, and in the midst of worry and fear and anxiety, we can turn to him and open up his word. He instructs our hearts, and we can put our trust in him, and we find hope. I heard Alistair Begg tell the story of one of his seminary professors who was moving from one home to the next, and this professor had a four-year-old little boy who was helping him in the move, and he gave his son a couple sheets of paper to help carry up the stairs. And so he, the father started to climb the stairs, and then he heard a big thunk. And he looked back, and he saw his four-year-old son trying to carry this thick classroom binder up the stairs. And his son was struggling and getting frustrated and started to cry because he just couldn't carry it. And the dad turned back around, went downstairs, picked up the binder, picked up his son, and carried them both up the stairs. That's a picture of what our Father in Heaven offers to us. If we trust Him, instead of trying to deal with our struggles and our fears and our worries, He not only carries our burdens, He carries us as His children too. And we can be confident in this, verse 8, because He's at our right hand. The Lord is at our right hand. We've taught our son, our oldest son, about the danger of crossing the road. And he likes to say, Dad, Dad, Mama, don't get hit by car. Don't get hit by car. Hold Mom or Dad's hand. There's safety. There's confidence for you when you hold our hand. God holds our hand. He is our protector and our defender, our strength. We can have confidence in this life as we hope in Him because He's at our right hand. Therefore, David says, my heart is glad. My whole being rejoices. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. Now for some of you, it's kind of the radar might be going off. That, that sounds kind of like Peter at Pentecost, Peter in Pentecost in Acts 2 quotes this verse referring to Jesus who was crucified and rose victorious, who did not see decay and corruption. See, we can be confident, brothers and sisters, and hope because of the resurrection of Christ. And therefore, our promised resurrection in Him. Death is not the end. Death, 1 Corinthians tells us, has lost its sting in Christ. See, for those of us who are Christians, we have hope beyond this life, a future hope. 
Death's not the end. War's not the end. Tears are not the end. There's a, there's a greater point to the stories and tragedies of our lives and to the stories and tragedies of this world. We need not be disillusioned and despairing, though in this life we still may never fully understand the death and the struggle and the evil that exist, we trust in God and we put our faith in Christ and we see a resurrected Savior who has promised to make all things new, to wipe away every sad thing. We taste now the joy and the pleasures of being with Him, but one day, someday, we taste it in full. One of my favorite stories in the Bible is about Mephibosheth in the Old Testament. He is the son of Jonathan, He's the grandson of Saul. At an early age, Mephibosheth is dropped as his family is fleeing from David and his army, dropped, and Mephibosheth becomes crippled as a result. David and Jonathan become best friends. They make a covenant with one another to love each other and to look after one another's family. So when David becomes king, he goes looking high and low for anybody in Jonathan's family to show love towards. And Mephibosheth is found. But Mephibosheth is crippled. He offers nothing to David. He brings nothing to the kingdom. And David says, bring him here. And David gives Mephibosheth a seat at the king's table, access to all that David has. In essence, David makes Mephibosheth his adopted son and thus heir of the entire kingdom. That's the gospel turning a refugee, one who was running for their life, into an heir of the kingdom. Let me read Romans 8, 15 to 17. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you received the spirit of adoption of sons and daughters, by whom we cry, Abba, Father, my Father. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, secure. He's holding our right hand, and if we're children, then we're heirs. Heirs of God, fellow heirs with Christ, provided that we suffer with Him in order that we also may be glorified with Him. We are heirs with Christ. One day we will inherit everything face-to-face in God's presence, fullness of joy, the pleasures that come from His right hand. In a world where it can feel like we're often running and exhausted, confused, and struggling, looking for a refuge, or living like a refugee. We can come to our Lord and we can trust Jesus, the Son of God who was a refugee, who left His home in heaven. He had no place to lay His head. He suffered and He died, but He now sits at the right hand of God. He has purchased the kingdom with his life, death, and resurrection, and he longs for the day for all who are united to him to inherit the kingdom. By faith in Christ, our perspective in this life is changed from refugee to heir, to wondering if life has a point in meaning, to seeing and trusting that God is the beginning, means, and ends of all things. In him, we really do have everything. We have it all. Let's pray. God, I pray that you would help us in a world filled with many questions and struggles, pains and hurt. Would you orient and reorient us yet again this morning that in you we we have every possession. In you we have our deepest delight. In you 
we have a sure hope. Lord, root us in that truth. Help us to live in this truth, to know that you are with us. It's in your name we pray. Amen.